So uh, today we get to start a new series, and I'm going to pull this up right here, um, but as always, before we do that, um, I want to have us just say this prayer together, uh, just to kind of get us, get our hearts and our minds ready. So let's all say this prayer together. Oh Lord, our God, we have chosen to make yourself known. Through your creation, your word, your son, and your spirit. Now reveal your glory to us and through us, the church. Speak to us, form us, lead us, dwell in us. Teach us today how to love as Jesus loves. To welcome the stranger, heal the sick, and care for the poor. To bear good news, build bridges, and bring your people home. For Christ in us is the hope of glory. May your perfect will prevail in us this day. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So as I said, we're beginning a new series today um, called First Love. And I want to start by asking you a question. I'm actually going to ask you to turn to somebody next to you and just, just briefly share with them um, what your answer is to the question. And it might be a little bit awkward, but just bear with me, all right? You ready? Here's the question. Who was your first love? Now, I'm going to clarify this, okay? This could be a crush, a childhood crush. It could be also a best friend. It could be a family member. It could even be a pet. In other words, what I'm asking is, who is the first other being that you remember loving, feeling affection for in your life. And if you can't remember anything, just say, I didn't have one. Then that's part of you, that's your answer, okay? So go ahead and turn to somebody next to you and just say, who was your first love? Who was the, what was the first other entity that you felt affection and love for? Here, tell, 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 uh, tell Rosie. I wish, I wish I could be like a fly on a wall in each of your conversations and just hear what you're saying. It'd be so great. Any, anybody, willing, anybody willing to share your answer? Or anybody willing to have your answer shared? <laughs> yeah. Sorry to make you think of that today. <laughs> Welcome to Trinity. <laughs> That's Lance. Make sure you go say hi to Lance at the end. <laughs> because I still love someone else more than her. No. Oh, 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 awkward, more. Awesome, wow. Okay, well, I mean, thanks for your honesty, man. I appreciate it. Anybody else with a less awkward answer? <laughs> yeah, Laura. 
She was just like so dear to your heart, right? Yeah? Great. Anybody else? Um, I, I told Joy that I wasn't going to share her answer. And I'm not going to. I'm not going to because she was like, it's so embarrassing. But I was going to say, I actually, because she was embarrassed of her answer, but I was like, actually, probably the, one of the first other like, things that I can remember having affection for was a stuffed bear uh, named Pepsi. Aww. His name was Pepsi. And I, he, like, he even fell into the sewer one time, and my cousin had to like, get a broom and get him out. And, like, and he's had like, a scrape on his eye ever since. Like, and, and I lost... I lost that bear to one of my girlfriends, actually. She took him, and she never gave him back, and then we broke up, and then like, she, I was like, hey, where's Pepsi? And she's like, oh, and then they never got him back. So Pepsi's gone forever. Who knows where he is, right? Man, Pepsi. So, somewhere out there, Pepsi, I know. I know Pepsi's still waiting for me. <laughs> you know, why, why do we remember these things? If we remember these things, why? I mean, some of these may be people... Or things that you haven't seen since childhood. You haven't even, maybe you haven't even thought of them until I asked you the question right now. Why? Yeah, there's just something in us, right? What is it about our first or early loves that just stick with us? And psychologists would have a lot to say about that, right? There's an entire theory called attachment theory, right? Where it's like, depending on the love that you got or didn't get as a kid, it kind of determines how you attach and to whom you attach, Right? And even whether those attachments are healthy or not. But it, it's even more than just psychologically. It, it seems like that showing love, being loved, it's just something we're born with, right? It's something we, we do instinctively. We are truly made for this. Maybe it's true what Frank Sinatra sang a long time ago. The greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved. There is a love that we desire to see all people experience. It's why we exist as a church, the family of God. God loves us, and so we love others. Right? Isn't that the order that we usually think? We just, uh, can I ask, actually, uh, Sam or Fred, whoever can reach it, there's a glare coming off that car coming through the window, and I'm like, every time I look that direction, it's like, ah, vampire. I feel like I'm going to disintegrate. <clears throat> Thank you so much. I can see. Um, we just spent the last few weeks on a series called Love Where You Live. Um, we, were, we were taking love to our communities. And, and let me say again, if you didn't hear me say it last week or if you need a reminder, I am so blessed at the work that our congregation has been doing even before that campaign started. And some of you may have not have participated as much or at all in this campaign uh, with us but you still poured out love for those around you. Some of you have been caretakers for your loved ones. Some of you have given hard work at your job. Some of you have, have uh, uh, loved your neighbors quietly, just on your own time. Some of you have spent focused time, um, maybe away on a vacation or just for, for a day or so, just loving your, your spouse or your kids. Some of you have even maybe even spent time caring for family members, or I mean, for, for church family members right here in the congregation. Maybe you've done several of these things all at once. You know, when you go through seasons of pouring yourself out, it's emotionally and mentally and spiritually a lot like running a marathon. You know you've accomplished something good. And for the most part, you wouldn't take anything back. You wouldn't do anything differently. We have to admit that it wears us out, too. We're tired. We need some space to breathe. We need some time to recover. We need some time to be reminded for God's love for us, for you. 
you know, Trinity Church is learning and we're growing and we're getting better and better at, at loving those around us, taking love to those around us in many different ways. Loving where we live is becoming little by little just a part of our church culture, which is great. One thing I've noticed, though, for myself, and I think probably some of you will agree with me, is that I often forget that this love, God's love, it's for me, too. I often forget that in order for me to go out and love where I live with the love of God, I have to first experience being loved myself. I all too often forget that Jesus told me to love others as I love myself. That's a part of it. That's a huge part. That's a critical part of it. So that's what this series is going to be about. Taking a step back after an intense season. And maybe some of you are still in this intense season. So maybe this, for some of you this is going to be a step back in the midst of an intense season. But taking a step back to be loved by Jesus. And to allow ourselves to fall in love with him. Today, my prayer for you as we begin this is that you will begin to hear the voice of God calling you, maybe calling you back and maybe calling you for the first time to return to your first true love in Christ. So this this idea of having a first love uh, comes from the book of Revelation. This uh, part of the Bible, if if anyone knows anything about the book book of Revelation, it's usually associated with the end of the world and these scary images about what's going to happen in some future time. So what could this kind of biblical book have to say to us about love? Well, a lot, as it turns out. Now, some of you might know this already, so sorry if this is a review, but here's a little background on the book of Revelation. It was written by one of Jesus' disciples named John. John was one of the 12 guys who followed Jesus around for three years, learning from him, discovering who God is by spending time with him. Now, John, not only was he one of the 12 disciples, but he was part of what is known as Jesus' inner circle, one of the, the three. There were only three of these 12 guys that got to experience or see certain things about Jesus which none of the other disciples got to see. It was just Peter, the guy who denied Jesus three times, and then two brothers, James and John. And John had such a personal and intimate relationship with Jesus that in his accounts that he wrote of Jesus, he referred to himself, get this, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Imagine if you were telling stories about your mom or your dad and you were like, yeah, I recall one day when a mother was hanging out with the child whom she loved. <laughs> right? You refer to yourself that way. People would look at you like, who do you think you are, right? People would either look at you like you're arrogant or they would look at you like you're really confident in your mother's love for you. And it, and it seems like the latter is where John was coming from. He just knew Jesus' love for him. So much so that that's how, that identified him. So, wow, this guy really knew Jesus, right? And not just like a casual acquaintance or just like a regular run-of-the-mill disciple. He even had a special name for himself in relation to Jesus, right? The disciple whom Jesus loved. But it gets better. See, John tells us in chapter 1 of Revelation that when he's writing this book and where he is when he sees this vision of Jesus, he, he's on an island. And he's not vacationing there or visiting there. He's in exile. He, he's being punished for preaching the word of God and the gospel. So as he's writing this book of Revelation, he gets his vision. He's actually a prisoner. He's in exile. 
And the, uh, the legend kind of goes that the reason he's there is because his persecutors tried so many different ways and times to kill him, like boiling him in hot oil or throwing him off a cliff or whatever. And it, legend, right? I don't, there's no like, evidence that this is true, but like some, the legend actually is like he prayed so much that his knees were calloused, and so when he fell, he fell on his knees, and it was, like, didn't, he didn't die. Like, what well, is crazy, right? So I don't know how much of that is true or if it's just legend, right? But it's like they, they tried so many different ways to just shut him up, and finally they said, we're just going to send you to an island. <clears throat> so here he is on this island. So he didn't just follow Jesus and become one of his closest friends. He believed in and loved Jesus so much that he was willing to suffer and be exiled to the island of Patmos just because he couldn't stop talking about this Jesus whom he loved and who loved him so much. So now that you know all that, don't you want to know what in the world could Jesus have possibly shown this disciple whom he loved in this vision that he had? In the first chapter of Revelation, John begins to tell of this vision he has. And if you'd like, if you have a Bible on your phone or you can pull one out of the, the seats in front of you, you want to look at the book of Revelation, it is really easy to find because it's the very last book of the Bible. There's nothing comes after it. Very last book. So he begins to tell of this vision that he has. He saw seven golden lampstands. Just, you know, they, used to, they didn't have like, you know, plug-in lamps back then. It was, you know, candles. So seven golden lampstands. And among those lampstands stood someone who looked like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't even imagine seeing something like this. But I can certainly imagine that if I did, I would react the way John did. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as, as though dead. <laughs> what is that thing standing in front of me? And just falling on my face like, oh my gosh, what did I just see? I'm pro this thing's probably going to kill me. I don't even know what this is. It's crazy, right? And then it says, Then Jesus placed his right hand on John and said, Do not be afraid. <laughs> yeah, right. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. And he goes on to tell John to write down everything he sees, which is what you see in the book of Revelation. And also that the seven stars represent seven angels of seven churches. So these are seven angels that are guarding, watching over these churches. And that the lampstands he saw represent seven churches, seven specific churches, congregations that had been formed. Now remember, this is the early church, right? There's no like uh, Saddleback, you know... Uh, uh, Mars Hill, it's not even a thing anymore. Uh, I, what, well, think of any like big church that you've heard of, right? It's like Hillsong, whatever, like, you know, Mosaic. There's no, there's not that. It's just these, in these cities where the disciples have traveled, they told people about Jesus, and certain people decided they want to follow Jesus, and so they formed a church. Then they traveled to another city, and they told people about Jesus, and maybe sometimes they were killed, and then more people came and told, and then they decided they want to follow, they formed a church. And they did that over and over and over again to different churches around they formed these little congregations. So there are seven main churches in big cities that Jesus is speaking to. 
<clears throat> now just stop for a moment and, and kind of take in what you've heard. If, if some of you didn't know any better, uh, you might think that John was crazy. Maybe he found some special mushrooms on the island, um, and he was, like, having a trip, right? <laughs> what is this guy seeing? Like, what? Really? <laughs> the words that he writes about, uh, what he sees and what Jesus tells him, these words have been studied and analyzed and interpreted. They've been, they have directed church history and even sometimes world history for centuries and even millennia, all right? And after all this setup and introducing himself, Jesus finally addresses his first audience, which is the scripture that we're going to focus on for the next few weeks. And we're going to kind of camp on this and look at different aspects of this. It's Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, he's telling John, write this down, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, he says to the church. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first, or you have left your first love. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, it's important to recognize that this message he's about to communicate, that he communicates, is a very specific audience. You know, a lot of times you, we kind of flip through the Bible, or sometimes people do this, they flip through the Bible and they, they read this and they think like, oh, This thing that he said to somebody thousands of years ago, this must mean that for me too. And maybe there's truth that you can take out of that, but you also have to read it in context. You have to understand that God or somebody was speaking to a very specific audience at a specific time in a specific place. There's a context, right? So we have to understand that Jesus is, yes, he's speaking to a specific audience, this church in this city of Ephesus. But the reason we've chosen this as our theme scripture for the next few weeks is because as your pastors, Albert and Christine and myself, we see a lot of similarities between the church in Ephesus and the church at Trinity Monterey Park. There are similarities. There's parallels. I mean, look what he says in verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Yeah, I mean, look at, at some of us. I look at some of us here. Who, who on a weekly basis are setting up, teaching Sunday school classes, um, you know, leading worship, um, leading Mandarin congregation over here, um, uh, preaching, doing all the kind of things, just coming in here. I mean, even those of you who like come and just drag in your families, right? I mean, that's work. We know, right? That's work just to drag your family here sometimes or your husband or whatever. Like, right, just to get somebody here is like, ugh, right? There's so many of you that I look at and I'm like, you are hard work. Like, you just, you embody hard work. Like, you just are the epitome of hard work. My brother Larry here, right here, man, Larry, you work hard, right? You just, like, when I think of Larry, I think of, like, hard work, man. Perseverance? We've got several people running a full or a half marathon right now. Many of us uh, work or busy during the week, and then you come here to church, and you just keep on working, 
As one of the pastors here at Trinity, one of the comments I hear from people most often is that they feel a warm, welcoming feeling when they come here. But the second most common thing I hear about Trinity from people who are just observing and who are new is this, or something like it. Wow, for a church your size, you sure do a lot. (laughs) Or for people who are a part of this congregation, sometimes I hear, wow, for a church our size, we do a lot. And then sometimes they'll add at the end, can we stop? So, yeah, I see a parallel between this description of the church in Ephesus and us here at Trinity Church. Anyone else see it? And he, he then says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, found them to be false. We're not people who go out and pick it and, you know, do this kind of stuff. Um, but, what I, but what I really see, that the parallel with this statement about the church in Ephesus and us uh, is, is integrity. I think it comes down to integrity. Um, I know many of you strive to live uh, upright and godly lives the best you know how. You try to honor your family. You treat others well. You do what you believe you must do to express your devotion to God. Our church board, who we're going to reelect in, in, a, in just a, a week here, they strive to act and serve with integrity, even on points where they may disagree. I have seen them act with grace and honesty and fight fiercely to uphold the mission and vision of Trinity Church. It's a hard thing to do to represent an entire church like that. Our pastors strive to live transparently, authentically, with integrity. And even though it's often hard, very hard, to know who can I really be completely honest and vulnerable with, we try to remain as transparent and accessible as we can. So I see that same integrity among our church. And then he says to the church, you have persevered and endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. Now, some of you who have been around this church longer than I've even been alive for decades and decades would know better than I would about just how much people at Trinity Church have persevered and endured. All the changes, all the mass exoduses of people, all the messy situations, all the loss and grief, all of the change. And every one of you here comes with a story full of perseverance and endurance through hardships. And the fact that you are here today or are listening to these words online sometime in weeks to come is a testament to the fact that you have endured. You have persevered. And I know we grow weary, but that weariness has not stopped us yet. Here we are. My Trinity Church family, I want you to know that I see these things in you. These are good things. The the work that you do, the integrity that you have, the perseverance and the endurance. More importantly, I, I know that Jesus sees these things in you. MPCS teachers, I see you here every day loving these kids and they're being crazy. And I'm like, wow, how do you manage to have patience with them? Because I would just lose it. I would be done, and you're, and you're here, like, loving these kids, right? It's amazing. I'm, I'm impressed with how you do that sometimes. I want you to know that it's not just other people who see, but God who sees the work that you do. And this description he gives of the church in Ephesus sounds a lot like Trinity Church. So Jesus sees all of that, and he commends the church for it. Yes, I see it, good, and yet there is something critical that's still missing. Oh, come on, Jesus. Can't you just let us slide with all this other stuff? Why do you have to pick on the one thing that we're missing? Well, it turns out the one thing that they're missing is the thing that is needed. 
In verse, verse 4, he says, again, going back there, it says, Yet I hold this against you, you have lost your first love. Or you have forsaken the love that you had at first. Now, the original language of this, that this verse was written in, it actually means literally a lot more like you have let go of your first love. It's not just that you lost your first love, like, oh, where'd it go? I don't know, it just went away on me. No, it's like you were holding on to it, and then you let it go. I did that with my, my baby son once. I forgot that he couldn't walk, right? And so I'm like trying to do like two different things at once. I'm trying to grab this thing over here and trying to, trying to you know, feed or whatever. And I, I set him down on the floor like this and I forget that he couldn't walk, right? Because I'm used to setting my daughter down because she can walk. And I'm like, okay, let me get this. Oh, and there he goes, topples over, right? It's like, it's this precious thing that you have to hold on to, right? You can't just let it go. Now, if you've heard a sermon on this scripture before, on this losing your first love, or if you think you know where we're headed with this, bear with me. I am not trying to use the scripture to say, all of your hard work doesn't mean anything because you don't love Jesus enough. That's not where I'm coming from. What Pastor Albert and Christine, myself, what we are trying to communicate is this, and what we're going to be communicating over the next few weeks. God really does see everything that you do. But there is something of highest, utmost importance to God. And it is not the work that we do. And I want you to really hear that. Because I think a lot of us feel, whether or not we know in our minds that this is not the right answer, a lot of us feel like ultimately what God really wants for us is just to run ourselves into the ground and say, look what I did for you, God. I'm limping. You know, I'm barely making it, but look what I did. It's all for you, God. That's, that's, when, that's when we really know that God's smiling on us. Like, yes, now you finally arrived because you've beaten yourself to a pulp just for me. What is of highest importance to God? He said it's the love, that first love. So what do we do about it? What are we supposed to do with this? Uh, first, it's important to know that Jesus, when he says letting go or forsaking or losing your first love, what does he mean by that? I think the easy answer is to say, well, our love for God just grows cold. And I think we all, we all agree. It does, doesn't it, sometimes? Right? Uh, um, I know many of us have had experiences uh, at a retreat or at a small group time or maybe praying for experience of forgiveness for the first time where we feel this excitement. You guys maybe have experienced this before. It's called a spiritual high, right? Um, I, I, when I was a youth pastor, I saw this a lot. When we'd go, especially when we'd go on our mission trips down to Ensenada, right? And there'd be at some point during that mission trip where all the students would just break down. They would cry. They would, oh, God, I'm, you know, I want to I follow you again. I'm going to commit my life. You know, I'm going to do this and making declarations and making commitments. And oh, this is, you know, forever, God, me and you, we're going to do this. I'm going to walk this path, right? And then they come back to regular life. Things start happening. And then in, you know, like a month, they're like, what happened? I don't feel that same. Well, Yeah. Right? Those moments when it's like, I don't care who knows that I love Jesus, I'm going to shout it from a mountaintop. Right? And then something happens. And I'm not condemning you if you've ever been, experienced that. I've experienced that. It's easy to let that happen. I mean, you've got temptations and frustrations and people around you, they're right in your face. And, and, and slowly God kind of becomes this vague and not immediate entity in your life. And everything else becomes the thing. And so the spiritual and the eternal takes a back seat. Maybe sometimes he gets kicked out of the car entirely. Yeah, we know about this. 
So we all understand this idea of our love for God just kind of fizzling. But then there's this other understanding of interpretation of what first love is talking about. Many Bible scholars have come to believe this. This is not only talking about our love for God, but our love for God's people. The church grows cold in God's family. You know, we love each other not just by giving things, but by being together, by praying together, by learning together, by worshiping together, sometimes even by suffering together. We have the opportunity to love God's family, and again, because of distractions, time constraints, other commitments, maybe even sometimes you get mad at somebody in church, or you get mad at one of the pastors, like, I don't like you said that, so I'm going to leave the church for like three months or whatever, and like, something happens, and we pull away, or we drift away, and that family of God that was once so critical to our understanding of God himself in our personal and spiritual growth gradually becomes less and less of a priority. Now, I don't really think you need to choose one understanding or the other. They are both helpful. We are called into deeper love with Christ, and we are called into deeper love with each other. And from that place, um, we go out and love the world. So what do we do? Jesus tells the Ephesus church two two things that they need to do. First, consider how far you've fallen. Acknowledge, yes, things are not what they used to be. Things are not what they were. And then he says, repent and do the things you did at first. Repent literally just means turn around, 180, go the other way, and do the things you did at first. Now, I want to clarify something. It would be really easy to think that Jesus is telling us he wants us to be infatuated with him for the rest of our lives. We talked about our first loves at the beginning, right? Who was your first love or whatever. I think, I think many of us remember or we've experienced that feeling of infatuation, right? Anybody ever felt that feeling of infatuation? Okay, right? It's like, oh, I can't wait, right? I remember when my wife and I were just dating, and we couldn't wait to see each other. Uh, I would get butterflies driving up to her, to her apartment. She would get butterflies when I texted her that I was on my way to her apartment. When we held hands and we kissed, there was electricity, right? <laughs> <laughs> I could just talk to her forever. I was infatuated. It's normal. It happens. It's okay. So what about now? (laughs) I love my wife more than I ever have. I respect her more than I ever have, especially after watching her have three kids. And I expect that love and respect to grow every day. But I'm not infatuated. We have moments... Like just yesterday, in fact, where I'm, I'm getting home, uh, and she was with the kids all morning, and she has to leave. So as soon as I get home, she's like, good, you're home. She has just enough time to cram food in her mouth, run through a couple piano things that she had to do, and then she had to run off to a rehearsal. I don't even think we actually looked at each other's faces in that 20 minutes that I was home. And she, and she was home at the same time as I was. Because if she would have looked at my face, she would have noticed I had this giant, puffy, swollen red eye. <laughs> she didn't even notice until she got home. Because right? we didn't even look at each, like we didn't even stop and look at each other, right? No, I don't expect my marriage to go back to those days of infatuation. There's still moments where I'm like, especially like when I go away for a week to a mission trip or I, you know, I don't see her for a long time. I'm like, oh, I can't wait to see her. But it's okay that we're not in the infatuation stage. There's time for that. And then there's a time to move on from that. And I'll tell you what, it sure is refreshing and uplifting when one of us tries. <laughs> You know, where she does something or I do a little something, and it's like, hey, 
hey, you still notice me when I compliment how she looks or when she tells me that my hair doesn't look stupid even though I say that it does or whatever. You know, it's like just some small thing where it's like, yeah, when she tells me that I'm handsome even though I feel like, Bleh, you know. But the, the maturity of tending to that relationship as a valuable and precious treasure is really what, what we're doing now. We're in that stage. We have to, it's work. You have to tend to it. I think that's a good picture of what Jesus is calling us to when he says, return to your first love. He's not saying, oh, come back to the infatuation. I want you to get, I want you to get spiritually high again. That's not what he's saying. Because that doesn't last. It's bound to fade. Why would Jesus set us up to fail? Why would Jesus set us up to feel like that again? See, love is not something that you feel. It's something that you do. And when you don't feel love for someone that you're supposed to love, but you know that love is what you're supposed to show, you do the things that love does. Because true love doesn't just feel. True love does what love does. I want to share with you a part of the Bible that, for me, has always been a meaningful and effective illustration of what it looks like to be in or to return to that first love place. And appropriately, it's from the book of John. We just learned all about John, right? You know everything about John that you need to know, right? This was written by John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So it's John 15, if you would like to turn there with me. And this is a scripture that I've come back to at several points in my life. And even in our marriage, Gloria and I have come back to this scripture a few times. And it has helped to refresh our souls and, help, and give us the, the, the refreshing that we need to love each other again. So John 15, uh, verses 1 through 17. I'm going to read kind of a, a bit, but I'm just going to read through it, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. This is what Jesus says. And I, I want to invite you, actually, we, as we read this, just really, really take it in. Don't read it like as a, as a, as a textbook kind of thing. Just take it in, and I want you to imagine that you're reading a, a letter that Jesus wrote to you. Or if you're just listening, imagine that Jesus is standing here talking to you and saying these words to you, okay? I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. And neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, 
to lay down one's life for one's friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master's business is. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. There's some words as you read through that or you listened that probably stood out to you that were repeated, and that kind of became the theme, right? Vine and branches bearing fruit, love. But the word I want you to hold on to is the word that I believe is the key to not only returning to our first love in Christ, but to being in a lifestyle of experiencing that love in Christ on a daily basis. That word is remain. Remain. To remain, to abide to stay, to live. You know, as people, we naturally want to jump to being fruitful, right? What are we doing? What are we going to do? We've we got to accomplish something. We've got to make something of our lives. What do we have to show? We even have that saying, right? What do I have to show for it? I've done all of this. I go to church or I do all these things. What do I have to show for it? We want our lives to count for something. We want to accomplish something. We want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. Some of you may have even joined a church for that reason, because you tell yourself, I want to be part of something bigger than myself, something bigger than just my own existence and survival. And that's important. There's nothing wrong with that. We should embrace that innate desire within us to want to grow and achieve and pour out our life for something or someone else. But here's the thing. Jesus, listen to me, please, very carefully. Jesus does not expect us to do all of that and to bear fruit without first learning to remain in him. Jesus never expects us to go out and just bear fruit and do things and love other people and love our cities and care about our communities and take care of other people without first ourselves learning how to abide and remain in him. So what does that mean, to remain in him? How do we do that? You know, I think it's really important that he uses this illustration of the vine and the branches. There's a reason why Jesus did that. Now, I think we all have a basic understanding of how plants work, right? And I'm, I'm like pulling from my like high school biology right now, all right? Plants, they have a you know, main part, right? It's either the, 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 the stem or the, or the trunk, right? And that's the part that goes into the ground, which is the roots, right? And it pulls the water and the nutrients out of the ground, right? And again, high school science coming back to me, the most random things. Xylem and phloem. I just remember that, right? It's the, 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 the stuff that flows into the plant and the stuff that flows out of the plant. Xylem and phloem, the two things that flow in and out of the plant. Right? That, that vine is the one that is connected, right? And then there are all the little branches that come off of that. Now, what does that main part of the body do? That's where all the nutrients come from, right? It takes all the nutrients. And what does it do with the nutrients? What does it do with the nutrients? It feeds the branches. And in the case of a grapevine, what do the branches do? They're the ones that produce fruit. You don't see the grapes growing off of the, off of the directly from the vine. Just like you don't, 
You don't see leaves growing like straight out of the trunk of a tree. There's always a little branch, right? There's always a branch. Jesus said he is the vine. And hear me well. Jesus is the vine. Jesus is an endless source of everything that we will ever need. He is called the bread of life, the living water, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, the lion and the lamb, the suffering servant, the friend of sinners, the rock of salvation, the good shepherd, our great high priest. And he is Emmanuel, God with us. How's that for nutrients? How do you like them apples? That's nutrients right there. Eternal nutrients. And so we, those who are in Christ, who believe in Christ, who are holding on for dear life to Christ, we are the branches. We feed from him. We get our strength and life from the vine, from Jesus. But we want to hurry up and bear fruit. We want to hurry up and do. We want to sprout some grapes. It's not really hard to sprout some grapes. We have to come to a point where we realize that it doesn't work that way. We first need to learn to abide on the vine. There is no branch in the history of branches that has ever grown a grape without first remaining on that vine long enough to draw the nutrients needed and waiting for the right time. And then when the time is right, that branch will grow fruit, but not a moment before, only when that branch has remained. When we have remained, when we draw our sustenance from Jesus, then we can ask for whatever we wish. Then we can bear fruit and glorify God. Then we keep his commands and we love one another as Jesus has loved us. Then we lay down our lives for one another once we have learned how to remain. And by the way, you notice that whole list that I just gave? Those are things Jesus did. Asking whatever he wished, bearing fruit and glorifying God, keeping God's commandments, loving others as God had loved him, laying down his life for his friends. Those are things Jesus did. You want to know how he did those things? See, Jesus and God the Father, Jesus, God the Son, God the Father, had a special relationship, and Jesus had to learn how to remain in God's love. Jesus had to remain. So do you realize that today Jesus is calling us to enter into that same kind of relationship with him too? Now, I don't know about you, but for me, this sounds so much more appealing than just running myself ragged because I think that's what God wants for me or because that's what a good Christian is supposed to do or because I think that's, that maybe God will see everything that I've done and at the end he's going to open the door of heaven for me. It doesn't work that way. I need to learn to remain in him. I want to learn to remain in God's love. Anybody else? So this is my prayer for us today. This is my prayer for all of us. And I'm going to be learning this along with you. I'm, let me tell you what. And as I was preparing for this sermon this week, I kept coming back to this place where God was like, don't you dare go tell your friends at Trinity Church to remain in God's love without first spending time doing that yourself. I want you to know that I, I'm not coming to you pointing the finger like, you got to learn how to remain in God's love. I am learning to remain in God's love. I am learning 
in the midst of craziness and busyness, holding a baby in this hand and doing this on this hand and, and my wife is cooking, going crazy and we're all running around and we're coming back from work and we're right in the midst. Can I learn how to remain in his love? Let's pray. God, this is what we want and maybe, maybe we don't even know this is what we want, but this is what's going to keep us in this for the long haul. Because we can run ourselves out and we, th- we get to thinking like, this, this is it? This is, this is the Christian life? And Jesus says, nope. You're still missing it. You're still missing it. I see all the good things you do. I see your integrity. I see your perseverance and your endurance. I see all the things you've been through. But don't forget to hold on to your first love. Me. It's all about relationship with Jesus. And as you reminded me this morning, 1 Corinthians 13, I could speak in heavenly tongues and languages and give all my possessions to the the poor and give my body to be burned. But if I have not love, I am nothing and it means nothing. So God, teach us to remain in your love today. Help us not to wait another moment. Spend another moment spinning our wheels and just trying really hard. But to remain in your love and from that place to bear fruit. Thank you, God. We pray in Jesus' name.